It's on page 555 of the Book of Praise. And in Lord's Day 39, the church confesses Scripture's teaching concerning the fifth commandment. That's page 555 in your Book of Praise. Here we confess Scripture's teaching in the following manner. What does God require in the fifth commandment? That I show all honor, love, and faithfulness to my father and mother and to all those in authority over me, submit myself with due obedience to their good instruction and discipline, and also have patience with their weaknesses and shortcomings, since it is God's will to govern us by their hand. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, I'm going to start off by saying something that is not totally true. Here it is. We must always obey every command from the authorities unless they directly command us to sin against God. It's true in a way, but it's not totally true. That's not all there is to it. It's not so simple. For thousands of years, the church has wrestled with the complex questions of keeping the fifth commandment and of showing this obedience which God commands and which pleases God. But the church is also, in the great doctors of the church, uh, Augustine, for instance, Aquinas, and uh, the great reformers, the church has also spent a lot of time thinking about and thinking through how sometimes the church is called and Christians are called to keep the fifth commandment by showing disobedience, which pleases God. Now, this is a huge topic. It's a topic which a lot of people have studied and written about over 2,000 years. It's a topic which is very pertinent and timely for us in the situation in which we're living. And I can't possibly go into every detail, so I'd like to map out for you what we intend to do in this sermon. We're going to look at the character of obedience to God's law. Then we're going to look at the character of obedience to man's law, to man's laws. And then we're going to end up looking at three examples of situations where Christians might practice godly, faithful noncompliance to the authorities. So we'll look at three examples of situations where Christians might choose to practice disobedience, which pleases God. And we're going to be going through the scriptures, of course, because the last thing we need is to come together in church and listen to what the minister thinks. We're going to be going to the scriptures. And so if you want to get more out of the sermon, it would be helpful to have your Bible handy to look up the verses that we're consulting. Now, the first thing that we'll look at is the character of obedience to God's law. And when we read the scriptures, we notice something rather surprising. That when God gives commands and laws, he does not require absolute, blind, unquestioning obedience. And that's a little surprising. 
in one way it's surprising, in another way it's not. Because the true faith is not like Islam, for instance. Islam means, the name Islam means submission, and the religion of the Islamists is total, unquestioning, blind obedience to a God who is pure will. He does not exist in relationship. He does not exist in love, or he doesn't exist at all. But in their theology, he does not exist in any kind of relationship as the true God does, living in relationship in himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, in eternal love. And so the God of Islam, the false God of Islam, is pure will. You submit, you do what I say, period. That's not how the true God acts. Rather, the true God relates to us in a context of covenant love, as a father with his children. And he is the very pattern, says the scriptures, for all parenting. He is the pattern for all godly authority. And I want to go through a few examples here from the scriptures of how this looks. You think of Abraham, for instance, and the destruction of Sodom. Now, the Lord had determined destruction of Sodom. And yet he patiently waited while Abraham came back time and time and time again and said, Lord, if there are just five fewer righteous people, will you still destroy the city? He took the time to listen to Abraham and to respond to him. He didn't say, Abraham, I've made my decision, be quiet. Sometimes we do that as parents because we, we're running out of energy. We're running out of time. We're running out of patience. So we just say, be quiet. It's because I said so. And yet you see with Abraham talking to the Lord before the destruction of Sodom, that even when God has purposed righteous judgment, which is deserved, he still bends down and inclines his ear and hears the voice of his children and they have questions about it. And he listens. And he responds, and he interacts. He does not demand absolute, blind, unquestioning obedience. You see the same thing a little later in chapter 19 of Genesis when Lot is fleeing the city, and Lot, of course, is, is taking his time, and then they're, they're, they're dilly-dallying to get out of the city, and, and the destruction is about to come. And then Lot says, can't I just flee to this little city, Zoar? It's just a little one. It was one of the cities that was determined to be destroyed. And yet, God does not say to Lot, well, I've made my decision, you just be quiet, blind, unquestioning obedience. The Lord actually responds to him and actually spares the city so that he can flee to that town that's a little closer by. You think of Numbers chapter 9, if you turn your Bible to Numbers chapter 9. And in Numbers chapter 9, the Lord is instructing the people about the Passover it was a great feast, uh, one of the greatest feasts of the people of God. It uh, is, is describing and, and picturing the sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. Now, if you, if you look at uh, verse 13, if anyone doesn't keep the Passover, that person shall be cut off from his people because he did not bring the Lord's offering at its appointed time. That man shall bear his sin. So you must celebrate Passover together with all the people. And if you don't, you're excommunicated. That's the law of God. That's the word of God. And yet, 
when they keep Passover, then look at verse 6, there were certain people who weren't able to participate. Some of them had touched a, a dead body. They had buried a loved one who had died, and so they were ceremonially unclean. They could not participate in the Passover. And then Moses brings that to the Lord. And the Lord doesn't say, well, I've just said what I said, and too bad for you. No, the Lord responds, and he gives an exception. He says in verse 9, if any one of you or your descendants is unclean through touching a dead body or is on a long journey, he shall still keep the Passover to the Lord, not in the first month, but in the second month. So the Lord makes allowances for special situations in response to a question from his people. And then we can think of Ezekiel 4 verse 9. Now some of you might know the bread, Ezekiel bread, and that's from this chapter in this context. Ezekiel 4, the Lord is telling the prophet that he must go through some very, very strange actions to prophesy to the people about the judgment that is coming upon them. And the, the pertinent thing that I want to draw your attention to is what he commands in verse 9. He says, you've got to make this bread, and then you've got to lie down on your side for 390 days, and then you have to bake it. Look at verse 12, if you have your Bible open. You have to bake it in their sight, in the sight of the people, on human dung. That's pretty gross for us. But it was even grosser and more disgusting for Ezekiel because he lived according to the Old Testament rules of holiness. And this would make him ceremonially unclean. And so God has determined something. God has told them to do something. This is God speaking. And then what is, what is the reaction of the prophet? Look at verse 14. He says, ah, Lord God, behold, I have never defiled myself from my youth up till now. I have never eaten what died of itself or what was torn by beasts, nor has tainted meat come into my mouth. Lord, I've never done this. I've never broken the, the holiness and the ritual cleanliness rules if I could help it. And then the Lord responds. And he doesn't say, I said what I said. He doesn't say that. He says, see, I assign to you cow's dung instead of human dung on which you may prepare your bread. He responds and he alters his command out of mercy to the prophet. He relents. And so we see from the scriptures, and we can go through more scriptures, but I think you see that honoring and obeying God does not preclude humbly raising concerns or even humbly raising objections and requesting changes. And the Lord, and it's surprising, but it's, he does that in a gracious and merciful way. He responds and adapts to the difficulties of his people. So that's the first thing about the character of obedience to God's law. It is not absolute and blind obedience to a cold, objective, implacable God in the sky. It was like a computer that you've got to get the right answer or you're... You're out of here. That's not how God deals with his people. And there was a second thing about the character of obedience to God's law that I want to draw your attention to, and that is in Micah 6, verses 6 through to 8. Micah 6, verse 6 to 8. 
Now, in Micah 6, the Lord is teaching his people through the prophet that he does not want thoughtless outward compliance to the rules. He doesn't want that. Micah 6 verse 6, with what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? No. God doesn't want, and we see that in Psalm 50 as well, God doesn't want just the mechanical, outward, external keeping of his commands. He wants our hearts. And so we see verse 8, He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? That's the main thing. And it is in that spirit that we keep God's commands and obey His laws. And we see this when the Lord Jesus and his disciples are walking through the grain fields on the Sabbath. And you see that in Mark chapter 2. In Mark chapter 2, right at the end of the chapter there, in verse 23, they're walking through the grain fields on the Sabbath. And I'm just going to read that section with you. Mark chapter 2, verse 23. That's page 838 in your pew Bible. One Sabbath he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain and the Pharisees were saying to him, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar of the high priest and ate the bread of the presence, which it is not lawful for any but the priests to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Now the disciples, the, the, the Pharisees rather, were all about blind obedience to the letter of the law. They said, you're not supposed to be working, you're not supposed to be harvesting and grabbing a few Years of grain on the, on the Sabbath is harvesting, you're working, you're sinning, you got to stop, don't care how hungry you are. And the Lord Jesus comes back with a surprising response. He describes that situation where David was running away from Saul, he had no weapons, he had no food, he was in need, he was hungry. And the only food around was the bread of the presence, which was put before the veil every day and then taken away and new bread was put there. But it was holy bread. Only the priests could eat it. So it was against the law of God to give it to anyone who was not a priest. And yet, the high priest gives this bread to David and his men. Why? And the Lord Jesus quotes this approvingly. The Lord Jesus is not... Uh, he is not uh, judging this act. He is, he is quoting it approvingly. What was happening here? Well, applying the law strictly would have meant perhaps the capture or even the death of God's anointed one. It would have meant the end of the Davidic house before it began. And of course, we know the bigger picture. It would have meant that the Lord Jesus, if David had been killed, 
that the Lord Jesus perhaps would never have come. So there's a lot going on here. And the Lord Jesus teaches us a scriptural principle here at the end of this, uh, verse, these verses we just read. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Man was not created to serve the laws, but the laws were created to serve man. The reason God gives us laws is not to enslave us, but to liberate us. Isn't that how the Ten Commandments works? The laws that God gives us are to enable us, to focus us, to direct man to his chief end, and that is to glorify God, to enable him to do good and to turn away from evil. And so when applying the letter of the law will cause evil and prevent good, then it is pleasing to God not to apply the letter of the law. That's what happened in David's case with the showbread. And the Lord Jesus gives his blessing upon this. And so we see two things about the character of obedience to God's law. It is not blind, absolute, unquestioning obedience that he requires. And secondly, he requires obedience in the way of seeking good and not evil, doing justice, loving kindness, and walking humbly with our God. Now, God's authority is unlimited. But all other authorities instituted by God are limited. And if the law of God is not to be applied with blind, unthinking obedience, how much less the laws of men? God requires of his people thoughtful, intentional, deliberate obedience, not outward, unthinking, reflexive, mechanical obedience. He requires reasonable, rational obedience, which embraces the good and turns away from evil. And we have seen this in our reading in 1 Peter chapter 2. In 1 Peter chapter 2, the apostle calls us to be subject for the Lord's sake to every authority that God has instituted for man. And when he writes there for every, every human institution. That doesn't mean to say that authorities are human institutions made by people. It means every institution that God has created for man, every instituted authority that he has ordained. And he calls us, the apostle calls us to be subject. And there's that word again that we've been meeting a lot lately in the sermons. There's that word for taking your proper place. For the Lord's sake, he says. And so it's an act of worship. We are subject to the authorities, to every authority that God has instituted. For the Lord's sake, for him, to worship him, because it is good, because it is right. Now sin and the fall was a massive explosion. It threw everything out of, and everyone out of place. And when we take our places in the power of the Spirit, when we take our places again in marriage and home and the workplace and in society, we keep in step with the Spirit who is working to restore and to make everything new in Christ. And so that also includes our relationship to the civil government and all authorities. 
Now note, as we look at 1 Peter chapter 2, what the role of biblical authority is. The role of biblical authority is laid out there in, in um, verse 14, that the authorities are sent to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. And you see that come back in verse 15 again, for this is the will of God that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. And then you see that again in verse 16. Live as people who are free, but not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil. In other words, you use your freedom to do good, living as servants of God. So that's the area that God gives to the civil government to punish the evildoer and to praise those who do good. That's the character of the civil authority as God has instituted it. And so Christians ought to be the very best citizens and the very best employees. They need to be known for their faithful and humble and cheerful obedience, their respect and their honor towards those whom God has set over them. And the job of the civil magistrate is to punish evil and to approve the good. And when someone does evil, the civil magistrate is a minister of God to carry out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. The civil magistrate may not punish people because the people have disobeyed the civil magistrate in the first place. It's not about them. They are ministers of God. They visit God's wrath on the wrongdoer. And so we are called to be subject to the authorities by doing good. That's how we honor God. That's how we honor the authorities. That's how we honor their task and their calling. And we don't just do it to avoid punishment from the authorities. We don't just do it to avoid God's wrath being visited upon us through his ministers, the civil authorities. But we do it for the sake of conscience. And you can see that if you have your Bible handy in Romans chapter 13. In Romans 13 where the apostle says in verse 5, he says, Therefore one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. Well, what does that mean? It means this. We, we do it not because we're afraid of getting in trouble. We do it not because we're afraid that the civil authority will punish us and, and we won't like the punishment. We do it not because God will visit his wrath upon us through the penalties and judgments of the civil authority, but we, we do good, we subject ourselves to the authorities by doing good for the sake of conscience. That means because we know it's right. Because we have to do it. Because this is what pleases God. And so we, we don't choose to do or not do things based on whether or not there might be unpleasant consequences from the authorities as a result. That's not what governs our decision-making process. We choose to do or not do things based on whether or not it is good and pleasing to God. And when the authority works properly in marriage, in family, and the workplace, and in civil society, when the authority works properly to punish the evil, to promote and praise the good, then there is order and there is harmony and, there is, and, and good is valued. And wrongdoing and evil is restrained and punished. And that's the biblical picture 
of a biblical authority in society. Now, what happens when it doesn't work properly? What happens when the civil authority is cruel and, and wicked and does not promote good, but rather praises evil, and everything is upside down? Well, in the part that we read from Peter, we have some instruction which is applied to servants, but the principles here certainly apply to, to all authorities. And let's, let's look at there, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 18. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. So even if an authority is wicked and unjust, it doesn't take away from Christians, from believers, the duty to honor them, to see them as ministers of God, and to be subject to them. That means to take our place and to recognize their place, to honor the office. Now, taking your place and staying in your place is a very, very important thing. We've seen that. Now, we've looked at Jude before, but I want to go back there again to Jude. Jude is right there at the end of the New Testament, just before Revelation. And you remember Jude verse 6, which speaks about the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling. This is, of course, the devil and all his henchmen, the devil was one of the most glorious angels, but he did not stay in his proper place. He tried to grasp a place which was not his, and so he fell, and with him, all of the angels that are now demons that were with him. So they were consigned to judgment, and we see that in verses six, in verse 6, that he is kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of that great day. So that's the angels who did not keep their place. And then look at verse 8. Because Jude is writing about certain people. Look at verse 4. Certain people who are creeping into the church and turning the church upside down with their bad attitude and with their bad ideas. And so he talks about these angels that didn't stay in their place. And then he goes on verse 8 to talk about these people. Who are these people? These people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. They're proud and, and boastful, and they rebel against authority, just like the devil and his angels did at the beginning. And then Jude calls our attention to the archangel Michael. In verse 9, the archangel Michael was contending with the devil. They were disputing about the body of Moses. And you would expect that if anybody could trash talk the devil, it would be one of God's holy angels. But he doesn't do that. He did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. He didn't swear at him. He didn't call him names. He just invoked the righteous judgment of God upon the devil, who is a great authority that has fallen greatly, but is still a great authority in the kingdom of darkness. And so Jude says, if, if the archangel Michael is so restrained in blaspheming and mocking and reviling even the most wicked authorities, who are these people that are coming to the church that are reviling the authorities with a proud and boastful and rebellious spirit? Look at verse 11 there. 
These are people that have the attitude of Korah. They have perished in Korah's rebellion. You remember Korah, Dathan, and Abiram, and their families were, were struck down by God for rebelling against legitimate authority. And these people have that kind of a rebellious streak in them. And if you keep reading in verses 12 and 13, you see that Jude describes rebellious people as a blot on the church. A rebellious spirit, they're like hidden reefs. They're dangerous. A hidden reef, if you're sailing on a ship, you're coming close to the shore, there's a hidden reef that's going to destroy, it's going to kill you. There are hidden reefs at your love feast. They're wrecking the communion of the saints. They're feasting with you without fear. They're shepherds feeding themselves. They're waterless clouds, unfruitful. They're swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. Jude does not spare his words. He waxes poetic to describe how horrifying it is that people with a rebellious and proud and, and boastful spirit reviling the authorities would have a place in the church of God. And he, he connects them to the judgment of the angels, the, the, the fallen angels, the demons. The gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever for them. And then he goes on in verse 14 to say, well, Enoch prophesied about people like this. He says, the Lord comes with 10,000s of his holy angels to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way. And of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him, these are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loudmouthed boasters showing favoritism to gain advantage. I think Jude is pretty clear that in the church of God, there is no room for a rebellious spirit. That is a great shame upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and it is something which destroys the character of the church as the loving communion of the saints. And so let's go back to Peter now, 1 Peter chapter 2. And we're reminded that we are to be subject, we are to take out place, we are to keep our place, we are to honor authority, not revile it, not rebel against it. But does that mean blind submission? Well, it doesn't mean that with God, and it certainly doesn't mean that with human authority. It doesn't mean blind submission, but it means obeying in the way which seeks justice and good and turns away from evil. It means submitting in the way of Micah chapter 6, do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with your God. And so you look at verse 20 of what we read there in 1 Peter chapter 2. And think about what might be happening here. He says, for what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? If you do something wrong and you're uh, unpleasant and, and not gentle, your unjust master beats you for doing something wrong, how does God get glorified in that? It's actually shameful because that unjust, unbelieving master says, oh, look at those Christians. They don't do what's right and they had to be beaten 
to, to, tell, to, to, to teach them a lesson. But then the apostle continues to say this. He says, but if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Now, what's happening here? How can this servant be punished for doing something good by an unjust master? Well, obviously, he has not followed an evil directive, because if he followed the evil directive, he would do something bad, and he certainly wouldn't be punished by the unjust master. What's happening in this situation is that he has done what is right. He has done what is good. He has done what is pleasing to God, and it does not please his unjust master. In other words, it goes against the wishes of his master that he has done good. And so he is beaten for it, and he suffers for it. Now, try to pull your mind out of Canada in the 21st century and go way back to the first century in the Roman Empire. And there, the paterfamilias had, the, the, the head of the house had the, <clears throat> at certain points in the Roman Empire, had the authority to even take life. At certain points in, in the history of the Roman Empire, the, the husband could even condemn his wife or his children to death. That's how much power he had. Later on, less power, but certainly a slave. A slave could just be beaten to death, and usually without too much consequences, too many consequences for the master. So imagine this unjust master perhaps furiously beating a young slave girl. She's, she's at the point of death, and the Christian slave stands in front. And the unjust master says, get out of my way. He gives a command. And the Christian quietly is noncompliant. He says, master, she's going to die. Don't do this. It's not right. And so maybe he gets beaten to her with an inch of his life. But he saves the life of the young slave girl. He saves her life by doing good. He stands in the way of cruelty and injustice. And he did it as a Christian. He was humble. He was respectful. He was firmly noncompliant. And he was beaten for it. Now look at verse 23. How does he do it? How was it done? Well, not reviling and not threatening and not seeking to be judge and jury and executioner over the authorities that God has set over him. But he does it entrusting himself to him who judges justly, because that's how Jesus did it. And so he follows the way of the Lord Jesus. And so, verse 20 again, if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. This is the gospel, brothers and sisters. Are we sure that we want to accept it? Listen carefully. If when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. <clears throat> we live in a time when much Christianity teaches us health and wealth and teaches us to have Jesus as a nice uh, layer, a superficial layer on our life and teaches us that the greatest thing is to be comfortable and well-off and have no suffering. But the Bible says the opposite. The Bible says that when you do good and you suffer for it, this is a gracious thing. And that word gracious thing there 
What it means is it's something that you give thanks for. It's something that you praise God for. It's a gift of God. I did something good and I got beaten up for it. I suffered terrible consequences. And what I want to do now is I want to praise God and say, thank you, Lord, for giving that gift to me. That's what the Bible says. Look at Philippians chapter 1, verse 29. Philippians chapter 1, verse 29, where Paul writes this to the church. For it has been granted to you, it's a gift, that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, that's a great gift, right? The gift of faith. That's not the only gift that the Philippians are getting, but look at this. But it has also been granted that you should also suffer for his sake. How would you feel if you're the Philippians and you're suffering, and then the apostle says, well, that's actually a gift from God. It has been granted to you that you should suffer for his sake. Look at Acts chapter 5, verse 41 for a moment. Acts 5, 41 the disciples have just been uh, beaten by the Sanhedrin. How would we respond if, if all the elders and deacons were dragged in in front of the uh, authorities and were beaten badly? What would our response be? Would we be upset? Would we be angry? Would we feel humiliated? Would we want vengeance? Or would we say we need, to, we need justice here? How do the disciples react? Look there in verse 41 of chapter 5. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. They had been non-compliant with what the Sanhedrin had told them. The Sanhedrin said, don't preach the name of Jesus. They said, we have to. You're telling us to, to, to not listen to God. We have to listen to God first. And they were rejoicing when they suffered the consequences. They praised God for it. It was, a, it was seen as a great privilege to suffer for the name. Brothers and sisters, when we look back at the history of the martyrs of the Christian church in the first centuries of the time of the Reformation, how we need to meditate upon these things. Because I wonder how ready we are to suffer for the sake of the name and how ready we are to see that as a blessing as a gift, and as a privilege. One thing the scripture makes clear then is that Christians do not suffer punishments as evildoers. They do not suffer punishments as angry revolutionaries, as loud, boastful, belligerent rebels. That is not pleasing to God. But when Christians suffer at the hand of the authorities, they suffer for calmly and quietly doing justice and loving kindness and walking humbly with God. Christians are by nature anti-revolutionary. We seek not revolution, but we seek reformation and restoration in the power of the Spirit. We obey the authorities, not blindly, not unthinkingly, but we obey them in the Lord. And so we've seen the character of obedience to God's law and the, the character of obedience to man's law. I want to end now just looking at three examples of situations where Christians might practice godly 
faithful non-compliance, disobedience which pleases God. The first thing would be this. Sometimes unjust or, or wicked rulers make rules or commit injustices which make it necessary for Christians to quietly and carefully choose peaceful non-compliance. You think of the midwives in Egypt. They were told to murder the little babies. They didn't. That was against God's will. It's against the sixth commandment. So that's an easy one. And then think of Daniel chapter 6. For 30 days, it was forbidden to pray to any God or any person, to petition any God or any person except King Darius. Now, Daniel had the practice of three times a day with the windows open towards Jerusalem, praying on his knees, and he does that in full view of everyone. You would think, why, Daniel? Is it a sin, Daniel, to go into your closet? Is it a sin to pray in your bedroom where nobody can see you? Why do you have to be so provocative? And yet, Daniel simply continues to do what he always does. He does what is good. And he keeps the first table of the law. He keeps the first four commandments. And he's ready to take the consequence for his coming into conflict, in a way, with the fifth commandment. Although, of course, the fifth commandment only requires us to give submission and obedience to all that is good not that which is evil. And then, of course, we think of, of 1 Samuel chapter 14. Saul is fighting the Philistines, and, and uh, Jonathan has begun the battle and, and helped uh, get the victory. And the Philistines are on the run. And then Saul is just full of his own glory, even though it was Jonathan that got things started. He says, cursed be the man who eats food until it is evening, and I am avenged on my enemies. And you listen to this man, and you realize that he's all about himself until I am avenged on my enemies. These are the enemies of God. These are the enemies of the people of God. Saul makes it about himself. He gives a foolish and an arbitrary command. And that leads to weak men because they spend the day fighting, but they can't eat. And so they're weak and they're tired. When evening comes and the curse and the command expires, they fall upon the meat without draining the blood. And so they break God's law. And the wrath of God comes upon the army. And you know the story. Saul wants to ask God, should we continue to pursue the Philistines? He asks for the answer from God through prophecy or through some other means. God doesn't answer. Saul says, well, what's going on? Why isn't God answering me? And it becomes clear as they draw the lots that Jonathan is the reason that God is not answering. Did not the king invoke a curse on whoever would eat? During the day, Jonathan, without knowing what his dad had said, saw a little bit of honey in the forest. He dipped his staff in it. He put it to his mouth, and his eyes brightened. And so he's under the curse. And he is, he is condemned to death. That's what Saul says. You must die. Foolish and arbitrary command is leading to a terrible injustice where the, the crown prince who is the hero of this victory, will be cut down for a foolish and arbitrary command of his father. And the entire army rises up against it. And all the men of Israel say, no, that's not going to happen. That is simply not going to happen. And so when the entire population rises up against a wicked, arbitrary, and unjust law, to say peacefully and respectfully, but firmly, this may not be. 
then that is an indication of how wicked the command was. And so you see God's people standing up against wickedness and standing up for life and for what is good in that circumstance. So sometimes unjust or wicked rulers make rules or commit injustices which require a godly noncompliance. And in other times, it's not necessarily an unjust or wicked ruler, but the situation arises where we experience tension in trying to keep two or more commandments. It's not always easy to ascertain when the fifth commandment bumps up against other commandments. When I was just newly in Brazil, we left the reading room in Recife very late at night after a meeting. I was with a few young uh, leaders of the congregation, and we came to a red light. I was driving them home. They lived in a very dangerous area. Well, the whole city was dangerous. They were living in a more dangerous area, and we stopped at a red light, and I was just waiting for the light to change, and they said, Pastor, what are you doing? I said, I'm waiting for the light to change. And they said, why are you stopping at a red light? I said, well, because that's what you're supposed to do. That's the law. They said, pastor, we're going to die if you stop at this red light. And they proceeded to explain that this, at that time, there were about 70 murders in one weekend in the city where we were. It was a violent place, and we were sitting ducks. If we stayed there at the red light, we were, violent, uh, we were sitting ducks for a violent attack, and possibly we could be killed. So it was not a good thing to be there. And so the sixth commandment, the preservation of life, now bumped up against the fifth commandment. And for the first time in my life, I went through a red light, and for many years afterwards, I followed that practice, and now I have to learn the opposite here in Canada. Now, different Christians can come to different conclusions. You're rushing to the hospital late at night with a loved one, and they're in distress, and, and there's a red light. Some of us might stop. Others may choose to cautiously proceed through the red light because we're balancing the fifth command and the sixth command. If I stop here for a few more minutes, my loved one might die. There's no rule that it has to be one way or the other. Different Christians will come to different conclusions in, in different situations. Being a Christian does not mean that we always do the same thing. It does not mean that we always come to the same conclusions on practical matters. What it does mean is that we find unity in scriptural teaching and scriptural principles upon which we base our actions. Now, Paul experienced this in Damascus. You remember just after his conversion, he was in Damascus. There was a warrant out for his arrest. The city gates were guarded. Now, if there's a warrant out for your arrest, then the authorities want you to turn yourself in. You, that's, the, that's the will of the authorities. That's the law of the land. You must be arrested. You must show up to the police. And that's what the fifth commandment would ordinarily require. You give yourself up to the authorities that they seek to arrest you. Would it have been a sin for Paul to give himself up. No, it would not have been a sin. Many Christians throughout history have willingly and cheerfully given themselves to arrest and to martyrdom. And later on in life, Paul does exactly that. He gives himself over into a situation where he knows he's going to be arrested and most likely die. But at this point, he chooses to escape. And escaping from the authorities that have put, issued a warrant for your arrest is non-compliance. It's disobedience to the law. And yet he chose to do that. Not for himself. 
but for the sake of the gospel. And thankfully, we have the letters of Paul in the New Testament because he did go over the wall in a basket. Ordinarily, the Christian ethos is to choose the good as the path which most protects and promotes life. And that's what Paul did in this case. And we see other examples in Paul's ministry of not simply accepting the judgments and commands and actions of the authorities. We think of Acts chapter 16 when he's in Philippi and he is beaten and thrown in prison without a trial. He's been terribly abused by the authorities. How does Paul react? Does he stand on his rights and get all angry and and he's sitting there vengefully plotting about what he's going to do against those authorities once he's out? No. We meet Paul and Silas at midnight, they're, they're, not, they're not angry, they're not bitter, they don't have a desire for, for revolution, but they're singing psalms and they're praying to God. They're just rejoicing even when they're suffering unjustly. And yet, and yet, the next morning when he's told to leave town quietly, he does not comply. Look at verse 37 of Acts 16. They have beaten us publicly, uncondemned, men who are Roman citizens, and have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No, let them come themselves and take us out. Of course, Paul and Silas were preaching the gospel. They were thrown in prison as troublemakers. And so the church is cast in a bad light. You guys are troublemakers. If they sneak out of the city now, that's what's going to be left for the Philippians to think. These guys were troublemakers and they were kicked out of the city. And so not for his own sake. But for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of the church and for the sake of Christ, Paul insists that things are set right. He doesn't just comply with the instructions of the authorities, but he lays claim to his rights under the law. And he points out that they have acted unlawfully. And he ensures that the magistrates publicly acknowledge their error and apologize. And even then, he doesn't rush to leave the city as asked by the authorities. But he exercises his right as a free Roman citizen to visit Lydia and the church to encourage them before finally departing. And then there's another occasion later on when the the authorities are about to beat Paul again, this time in Jerusalem, and he questions their authority to do so. Acts 22, verse 25, reads this way. But when they had stretched him out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned. So there's no blind, unquestioning obedience to authority. But Paul, as a Christian, feels that he can lay claim to his rights under the law and insist that they are respected. Now, this is the same Paul who penned the words of Romans 13. And so it's certainly a part of godly submission to the authorities to choose a peaceful path of non-compliance to preserve life, as he did in Damascus, or to insist that lawful rights and freedoms are honored and maintained. That is a Christian thing to do. We love. We love what is good. We do justice. We love kindness. We walk humbly with our God. And so those are our two examples there or a few examples. Now, we've seen how sometimes Christians can choose quiet, peaceful noncompliance when there are wicked, unjust, arbitrary, foolish laws, or when the actions of the authorities come into conflict with other parts of the law of God, or when they're in conflict with the legal rights and freedoms 
which the authorities are duty-bound to uphold and respect. And I want to end by just bringing in one more category for a moment, and that is this. Laws and commands which fall outside of the sphere of authority of those who govern us. And this is something which is not, we haven't paid enough attention to, especially in the last two years. It's a simple concept to understand that every authority except God's is limited to a certain sphere. And so the elders can't come to your house on a home visit and tell your wife what kind of breakfast cereal she must buy for the children. They do not have that authority, thankfully. That's not their job. That's not within their sphere of authority. And so if they give such a command, it's meaningless. You are not obliged to obey it, to comply with it. But the elders also cannot command each family in the church to meet from 7 to 8 p.m. every Thursday night and read the Bible for an hour. Is it a sin to meet for an hour every Thursday night with your family and read the Bible? Is that a sin? No, it's not a sin. You're not breaking the law of God by doing that. But it's wrong for the elders to dictate that. They do not have such authority over your family and over your home. And if the elders, God forbid, were to come up with such a command, then such a command should be met with sadness and with peaceful noncompliance. Not rebellion, but with peaceful, godly noncompliance. They're requiring something which, which belongs to the office of father and mother. It is not within their authority as spiritual leaders of the church to interfere in the running of the family and the household. And so also a husband. A husband's authority is limited. Imagine a husband that says to his wife, every time you talk to me, you must curtsy. Is it a sin to curtsy? Is he asking her to sin? You know, some people, we started the sermon with that. You must obey every command unless it causes you to sin against God. Is it a sin to curtsy? Well, it's not. Last time I checked, it's not. And yet, there's something terribly wrong with a, an, a husband giving this command to his wife. It is not in his sphere of authority to have such control over her. His command breaks the covenant of love and mutual submission. It perverts the relationship to make it into one of raw power and humiliation. And it is certainly a godly option for a wife in such, an, uh, such a situation to exercise peaceful, quiet, non-compliance. And obviously seek counseling as well. Now what we understand intuitively with family and church, we have difficulty grasping when it comes to the civil magistrate. We understand the limits for every sphere of authority, but when it comes to the civil authorities, we have trouble. We live in a time when more and more the civil government is aggregating to itself power and authority which belong to God alone. Instead of punishing evildoers and praising those who do good, government is more and more enthroned as a type of God in our society, a God which will care for you from cradle to grave, a God which is omniscient, it tracks you, it knows what you think, a God who is omnipresent, it hears what you say, it sees everything you write and do. A God who is omnipotent, it has increasing power over every detail of human life. And there's a reason for what's happening. Nature abhors a vacuum. 
And in the 19th century, the great philosophers declared that God was dead. Nietzsche writes about this and the consequences for civilization. God has been declared dead by our society, which now worships itself, which worships man. And so where God is no longer recognized, some other pseudo-God, some other substitute God will take the place. And this is something that we as church need to think about and need to discuss more going forward. Are we guilty of unthinkingly accepting the slow but steady growth of the power of civil government, inching towards the status of God or idol? When we receive commands from someone going outside of their sphere of authority, we have a choice. As long as, as, long as it is not sin, the command, we can choose to comply in order to keep the peace, or we can choose to peacefully, respectfully not comply, and then we must be prepared to take the consequences. Now, what does godly non-compliance look like? What does disobedience, which pleases God, look like? Well, it seeks not revolution, but reformation. I want to turn to 1 Timothy 2 for a second here. 1 Timothy chapter 2. And in 1 Timothy chapter 2, we see what the apostle says. First of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. What does godly noncompliance look like? It is prayerful. It must be peaceful, because that's what God calls us to. It must be quiet and godly and dignified. It seeks to do good. It seeks justice. It seeks to love kindness, and it seeks to walk humbly with God. It seeks to do the will of God. It seeks to live as free children of God. It seeks to honor the authorities, even the wicked and unjust ones. And it chooses to do good, even if it means suffering. It means that we do not revile, we don't threaten, we don't use violence, we don't join in revolutions and rebellions, but we entrust our cause to the judge of all the earth who judges justly. Brothers and sisters, we are not called to float through life unthinkingly. We are not called to blind, unthinking, reflexive obedience to every command from every authority. But we are called to be deliberate, thoughtful, intentional, Christ-like in our obedience, which pleases God. And we are called to be deliberate, thoughtful, intentional, and Christ-like in our disobedience, which pleases God. Why? Because he is the king of kings. Every time we obey and every time we choose not to comply, it's not for us. It doesn't depend on what we want or what we hope to gain, but we do it for him. And if we do it for him, then it certainly will be blessed. Amen.